As I mentioned, we are kicking off a new series this evening on the miracles and parables of Jesus. And I think you'll find that, like parables, there's often a deeper, deeper understanding of Jesus and his ministry at the heart of each miracle. I think we'll all benefit from this series in one major way. We hopefully will understand our Savior better, and in doing so, we'll be able to follow him better. Isn't that a great outcome? John 20 Verses 30 and 31 read this. Jesus did many other miracle signs in the presence of miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these miracles are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying that the miracles recorded here are for one purpose. To let you know who Christ is. That Jesus is the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Savior. And we're looking at, uh, tonight we're looking at Jesus' very first miraculous sign. The occasion when Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. And this miracle has more symbolism, I think, attached to it than most miracles do. And it's in this symbolism that we find a rich understanding of Jesus' ministry and its application to us in 2011. But before we dive into that uh, immediate context of the miracle in John 2, we'll be going to John 2, verses 1 through 11. Before we get there, I want to read you the immediately preceding context, uh, excerpts from John chapter 1. And uh, some of these are very common verses. So in order for you to hear them and consider them freshly, I just want you to relax for a minute. Take a deep breath. Close your eyes if it helps. Keep them open if you'll fall asleep. And just focus on these words as I read them to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. From the law, for the law was given through Moses. And we just finished the Ten Commandments in the Heidelberg series. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So here we have the logos, the word, the wisdom of God made flesh, entering our human race, Revealing to us what God is like 
No one seems to recognize him for who he is. But for those who do receive him, receive the wisdom of God, they receive God himself. With, that's the context for our miracle. With that as the context, let's look at Jesus' first miraculous sign. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. This is God's word. Let's ask for God's help and applying it to our lives. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> this is a, such an intriguing first miracle. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us understand the text, help us to apply the text. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you're calling us to this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Did anyone here grow up in a small town? Small rural town? Okay, a couple. Um, now, I've seen where many of you have grown up. Now, if you haven't grown up in a small town, a, a well-defined neighborhood will do, a well-defined city neighborhood. How many grew up in a well-defined city neighborhood? I had the privilege, I don't know if John's here, but I had the privilege of going through Berwyn and Cicero and seeing the, uh, the old sites and you know, seeing Cicero One and Warren Park and the old Timothy and Ebenezer. And as we were driving by, John was pointing out so-and-so family lived here, so-and-so's family. So I've seen that you guys lived in, in, in these really tight-knit, um, you know, clustered neighborhoods. And uh, it ha- these type of neighborhoods carry the same phenomena as a small town, as a small rural town. And, uh, you know, as a kid or, you know, maybe today versus back then, it can be a rough thing growing up in a setting like that because everybody seems to know your business. Your, 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 your latest dating travails could end up as the neighborhood gossip. Or whenever you fail, everyone knows you messed up. But what if the town really looked out for you? And maybe this was your case. What if the town looked out for you and had your best interest in mind so that when you succeeded, everybody celebrated You remember the saying, it takes a village to raise a child? 
Well, this is a lot more how it was in our reading. We never hear about the bride or the groom, who they are, who their parents are. But they were connected to a village. And most of the village would be happy about their marriage. And most of them would be invited to the wedding and would be part of the celebration. It was a big thing. In many ways, weddings in Jesus' day was like giant block parties. The first day and night was the most important, but the celebration would go on for two, three, four, even five days. I think we might get sick of our neighbors by then, but not so in Jesus' day. It was a tight community. They looked out for one another. Mary, Jesus, and Jesus' disciples were all invited to the wedding. The wine runs out at the reception. And Mary, feeling very empathetic for the wedding couple, maybe she was friends with the bride's mom or dad, it doesn't say, she wants to do something about it. She can't buy enough wine on the spot. She, what she needs is, she needs a miracle. Now the Bible never records a miracle for just the sake of the miracle. I remember hearing a, a comedian talking about this passage and he was explaining it like, you know, Jesus just wanted, he looked around and just wanted to keep the party going. That's not the case, I can assure you. It's not a miracle just because it's cool. It's not a miracle to keep the party going. But as John says in John 20, it's to reveal something about his character, his nature, his mission, his ministry. The miracle is dripping with kingdom of God symbolism. And it's in that symbolism that we find good stuff. And so I want to unpack a few things, a few details. And as we look at a detail, we'll look at its surface meaning. And then we'll go a little deeper and we'll look at its deeper meaning. So let's look first at the miracle setting itself. Jesus could have picked any setting, or, or God could have preordained any setting for this first miracle. It could have been a temple. A major religious festival could have been the palace courtyard. But he chose instead a wedding banquet. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us, but a wedding, especially a wedding banquet, is, a, is a, one of God's favorite metaphor for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of heaven, for God's reign and rule in our lives. It's a metaphor for both life with God now and for heaven to come. A few examples of where you could find this in, in the New Testament is Matthew 22. The first two verses say this. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Again in Matthew 25. The kingdom of heaven is like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. One of my favorite New Testament passages is Revelation 21. The first five verses, let me read to you. Listen to the wedding symbolism. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying 
or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. A beautiful passage. It's wedding symbolism of God uniting with his people. On the surface, it looks like Jesus is just attending a wedding. But if you look at the deeper symbolism, Jesus is kicking off the great wedding banquet at a wedding. Jesus is activating God's kingdom rescue mission, God's kingdom rescue plan at a wedding banquet. So Jesus is attending this banquet and the wine runs out. And this is more than just a faux pas. Think of it this way. I I was recently at a wedding and I can imagine... um, how awful this situation would be if, if it happened. Imagine you're at a, a reception. You, you all attended the ceremony, and you, you made it to the reception place, and there's about 200 people, and there was a, a, a mix-up, and they only have enough food to serve 100. Can you imagine that? What would, what would happen? What would people do? You know, this was our first Chicago-style um, wedding, and, and it's... It, uh, just had a lot of fancy parts and elements to it. And what happened if only half the guests would get served the food? Don't you think the word would get around? Maybe right there on the spot at reception. Food ran out, going hungry. People would be texting or Twittering. Or In Jesus' day, would it be even worse? In fact, ancient Near East scholars have found local laws where if you fell short on the banquet... Those in attendance could hold you liable in a court for up to half of the wedding gifts. This is serious. Can you imagine that? Well, my chicken was a little undone, uh, you know, a little, 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 uh, not fully cooked, so I want half of that uh, china set. This is really serious stuff. Big faux pas. Now, it may not have been a legal issue for this couple, but it would be extreme embarrassment, an extreme failure factor here. Now, Mary, who must have had some kind of close friendship with someone, finds out about this and is very concerned and knows that Jesus can help somehow. Jesus had begun his ministry, but only the teaching part of his ministry. He had called his disciples, had had done a little bit of teaching, but no miracles, no healings. And then we hear in verse 4, starting with verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother says to him, they have no more wine. And this is what Jesus replies. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Now on the surface, this detail looks like Jesus is honoring his mother despite his own preference. Jesus is being a good Jewish son and submitting to the fifth commandment because he eventually works on her behalf. Now, we just studied the Tenth Commandment, Ten Commandments. What is the Fifth Commandment? Honor, yeah, honor your, your, your father and mother. So on the surface, it looks like he, Jesus is showing a little bit of resistance, but eventually he complies. So he's submitting to the Fifth Commandment. And, uh, no, that's, a, that's a, true, a, a true statement. But if we look a little deeper, on a deeper level, you'll notice something interesting that Jesus opens with, dear woman. Now, that sounds kind of funny to us in English, and I've heard um, 
I've heard some commentators just get halfway there. They'll say, well, no, that actually is a, is a respect in, uh, of honor, a, a term of respect, a term of honor. And to say, dear woman, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, you know, dissing his mother at all. He wasn't being dis- disrespectful at all. But that's only half, half true. Yeah, the, the, woman, the, uh, the phrase there, which, which is translated in the NIV as dear woman, isn't a disrespectful phrase. It is honoring. It is respectful. But it's not a phrase that a son would use for his mother. In fact, nowhere else in the Bible, nowhere else in other literature in Jesus' day are there examples of a son talking to his mom with that phrase. They would use some other phrase that, that shows the, the relationship there. And many people think, and I agree, that Jesus is, is making an intentional step in starting his ministry. He's using the same, he, he, he's using this um, non-relational term, showing respect, showing honor, but making a distinction, and he's, he's kicking off his ministry. It's the first step. It, it's a turn towards beginning his public ministry. Jesus uses the same term in, in John 19, and, and this is the only place in the Bible, the only two places it's found, John 2 and John 19. When he's on the cross, he says, Dear woman, your son, and says to the uh, disciple John, your mother. So let, let's let the details, the symbolism and the details, collect and form a backdrop for the, for the meaning of the miracle. We have Jesus is at a wedding, which happens to be one of the biggest metaphors that Jesus, God uses for his kingdom. He addresses Mary, his mother, as dear woman, a respectful greeting for a man to a woman, but not a common one at all for a son to his mother. Let's move on. His mother says, do what he tells you to the servants. And so the next detail in verse 6 says this, nearby stood six water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Okay, so if you can picture here, over on the side, there are these six stone vessels. What were they used for? They were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. They were for purification rituals. And so... If you were going to this wedding banquet, or if you were going to dinner, or if you were going to, if, if you were going to partake in, a, in, in another um, function that required being clean before you get there, you would hold out your hands, and the servants would wa- pour water out onto your hands, and that would make you clean. And so it, w- it was a, a cleansing rit- ritual. It was a purification ritual. So if you wanted to have a meal, if you wanted to go to this banquet, you would have to become clean first. If you didn't, you would be unclean and barred from the event. And so there are these six pots. And these pots are for purification. They're reminders of the law. What keeps you clean and what keeps you unclean? What, keeps you, what allows you access in and what keeps you out? Some commentators even think the number of the, the um, vessels are important. There's six. 
And in Jewish literature and Jewish culture, seven is the perfect number. If you remember from your uh, end times revelation classes, in, that the, the, the mark of the beast is 666, the number of the beast. The imperfect, number of imperfection. If seven is perfect, six is short of perfection. Repeated three times, it's like total imperfection. So we have six vessels that represent the legal system, the law system, the purification system. And what does Jesus do? He makes the best wine out of water. In fact, it's so good that the master of ceremonies, the master of the banquet, grabs the groomsmen and says, I can't believe this. You know, most people serve the good stuff first, but you waited till now. Wine is another very symbolic element in the New Testament. Give me one quick um, reference that comes to mind when we say wine in the New Testament. What do you think of? I can't hear, but was that communion? Okay, Lord's Supper? All right. <laughs> um, yeah. This is... He, Jesus holds up the wine. This is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood shed for you. Wine is, is a symbol of the grace of the new covenant. In fact, there's a, a, a portion in Mark where uh, John's disciples come and ask him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your followers don't fast? And Jesus says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour the new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And Jesus is talking about the legalism, the law, how... The Pharisees and the, the, the religious misuse of the, the law was that, hey, we'll get to God by keeping the law perfectly. And the more we can keep these rules, the more leverage we have with God, the more access we have with God. And the only reason why God isn't doing good stuff for us and blessing us is because the riffraff down here can't keep the law. The wine of the new covenant is grace. Jesus says it's not the law that will give you access to God, but God's grace and God's love that will not only give you access to God, but allow you to keep the law. The new wine is God's grace brought to us by Jesus, the bridegroom. So there's the surface and the deeper levels of our miracle how does it apply to our everyday life how do we hit the ground running tomorrow and have this miracle affect us well i've got a great illustration it's one of um, my favorites from this man tony campolo and if you heard it just smile and reflect on the beauty of this living uh, illustration 
And if you haven't heard it, I think it, it, it'll, it, it'll surprise you. Tony Campolo was on vacation in Hawaii. The first night, he was messed up because of the time change. It was a four-hour time change from Philadelphia to Hawaii. And uh, he couldn't sleep, so we decided to go for a walk. And at about 3.30 a.m. local time, he found himself wandering into a diner. The only customers there were a group of prostitutes who had finished for the night, one of whom was named Agnes. And she mentioned that tomorrow was her birthday and that never in her life had she had a birthday party. Tony found out from the diner cook that they come to the diner every night. So he asked him if he could come back and throw a birthday party for Agnes tomorrow. And here's the rest of the story. He went around, made the arrangements. The cook spread the word. It was going to be a surprise party. It says, at 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I had picked up some cray paper decorations at the store and made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. We had gotten... Uh, Word had gotten out, and by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in that place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30, the door swung open, and and in came Agnes and her friends. I had everybody ready, and when they came in, they all screamed, Happy Birthday. Never have I seen somebody so flabbergasted. Her Her mouth fell open. Her legs buckled. When we finished singing Happy Birthday, her eyes were wet. When the cake was carried out, she began to cry. It took quite a while for Agnes to soak in the scene, but she finally blew out the candles. When asked to cut the cake, she asked if she could keep the cake a little while and not eat it just yet. The cook said, take it home if you want. Then looking at me, Agnes said, I, lived, I just lived down the street. I want to take the cake home. I'll be right back, okay? And she carried the cake out of the diner as if it were the Holy Grail. That is new wine that brings the grace of God to the world around us. What does this miracle mean for us? It means that there's no longer a sacred, sec, uh, secular sacred dividing line. That everywhere we are at, the groom is there with us. It's not just on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. It's not just at the church programs. It's not just in your couch when you're doing your devotions, but it's everywhere. It's in the cubicles. It's on the factory floor. It's in the truck. It's in the classroom. It's in the coffee shop. It's in your backyard when you're barbecuing or taking out your trash and you're talking with your neighbor. It's in the broken relationships in your family or extended family. It's even that line at the bank. The kingdom of God is at hand. The great wedding has begun. It'll culminate in heaven, but the bridegroom has arrived. When Jesus turned that water from those purification vessels into wine, 
He was not just keeping the party going. It was a kickoff. It was inauguration of his ministry. And it was a symbol of the grace of the kingdom that would permeate everything, including a wedding banquet in a small town in the Middle East. N.T. Wright, the author and bishop in the Anglican Church, put it this way, the word became flesh and celebrated a friend's wedding, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one who takes the ordinary and turns it into the extraordinary. And the miracle concludes like this. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him.